um, because it really preaches uh, the sermon. So you've essentially had the sermon. Should I let us go early? No, I won't do that. That's just evil preacher humor. Preacher can't ever let you go early. Please hear the Word of God. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in Me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, essentially, uh, our prayer is that the mind of Christ may live in us from day to day as we think about You, as we think about Your creation, as we think about everything You are doing, as we think about our lives in relation to Your work. Help us to think about those things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. And so bring glory and honor to You. And may our thoughts, as we have the mind of Christ, guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus and give us that peace of God that surpasses understanding. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this sermon is entitled Principles of Christian Optimism. And this idea of optimism may sound strange uh, to us because of the present decline of Christianity in Western culture and also because of Christians' fondness for complaining about their circumstances. But the Bible consistently says that Christianity at its heart is about unyielding hope, about believing the best, about pure joy in the worst of circumstances, and about confidence even in the face of certain death. The optimism that the Bible talks about is not some kind of sugary, vague hope or a, a mere human confidence that everything will somehow turn out alright. Rather, the optimism we are talking about, the hope we are talking about, is a sure, certain, firm assurance that is rooted in the nature and character of the God of the Bible. The nature and character of our God. God is all-powerful. God is in control of every circumstance and action of every creature. God is good. God is faithful to His promises. God loves His people so much that He sent His Son to die an awful death on the cross as a sacrificial lamb in order to take away His people's sins. He pursued His people, His people being us. 
He pursued His people even when we were going astray. And once He caught us, He adopted us adopted us as His own dear children. He has promised to work all things together for good. He is moving and directing history itself for the growth and benefit of His church. He will bring history to its pre-appointed conclusion for the magnification of His glory. And here's a spoiler alert. God wins. At the end of history, He is winning now. He has already, in fact, won the victory. And He will establish a new heaven and a new earth where we shall live in God's direct presence. There shall be no more mourning, crying, nor pain anymore. In the meantime... God has given us His great and precious promises that serve for us as an anchor for our souls. He has given us the Holy Spirit and He has told us that the Holy Spirit who lives in us is greater than He who lives in the world. Therefore, God says that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Consequently, we are able to love and obey God because of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. We are able to overcome evil in other people through an abundance of love. And we are able to stand firm in the face of the onslaught of persecution. In other words, we are to be an optimistic people. All of this, God has done for us. All of this is ours in Christ Jesus. We are even optimistic in our mission. Christ has given the church the Great Commission. You know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. In other words, the command that He gives us, He bookends, first of all, by telling, telling us all authority in heaven and on earth is ours for the purpose of our fulfilling the Great Commission. And then He reminds us that He will always be with us even to the end of the age. So while we're fulfilling that commission... He's at work in His church. We are to be optimistic in our mission as a church because Christ Himself has marshaled all power and all authority that resides in Himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and has given it to us for the express purpose of the completion of the Great Commission. And what is the church to do? What is the central function in the Great Commission? It is to preach the everlasting and eternal gospel. And the gospel, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, is the power of God for the salvation of all of God's elect, regardless 
or rather, let me state it uh, differently, not regardless, but from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language, from every culture, um, from, from every people, from every race, are being brought to Christ through this powerful Gospel. And the Bible suggests that this Gospel will so infest every nation and every culture that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord even as the seas are full of water. Now, we're not there yet. But the Bible has given me these great expectations. Therefore, my prayers are as big and as wide as these expectations. His kingdom is established. His kingdom, as Jesus talks about being that small little mustard seed, has indeed grown to be that great tree under which all the nations can come for shade and for rest. But that tree is not finished growing. It is continuing to grow and expand. And it is being empowered by God Himself. So, we as Christians are to be optimistic. So why is it then that we so easily become pessimistic? Why is it that we are so quick to give up hope? Well, there are two two reasons for this that I want to outline this morning. first reason I want to cover rather quickly. And then the second reason will take us directly into the heart of our Scripture text for this morning. The first reason that we so easily give up on this optimism or this hope why we become so easily pessimistic is because I think we often misunderstand the true nature of God's grace. We turn grace upside down. It's very tempting to think that God gives us His grace in response to our faithfulness. For instance, we like to believe that God helps those who help themselves. And so we get um, God's grace after we have been duly faithful to Him. We like to believe that we do something good for God and then God does something good for us. We like to believe that we have all the resources in ourselves to please God. Well, all of that that I just said is wrong. It is upside down. Um, In fact, God says... You don't have all the resources in yourself. God says, you are not able to do those good and faithful things to me that's going to cause me to do, that's going to cause you, cause, cause him to bless us in response. I'm quoting the words of Jesus, word for word. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. Here's my point. We have all these wonderful, hope-filled desires to do all these wonderful things for God. But at some point after we get started, we fall down on our face and we think, but I've got to do something good for God. And so we get up and we try and and, uh, do something good for God and we fall on our face again and again. And eventually, 
our hope begins to wane, our energy for doing uh, things for God grows weak, and our hope turns to apathy or indifference. We do not possess the power or the ability to please God in and of ourselves. Grace says you don't have the resources to even get started. But God says He has everything you need. And so the first thing we should do is flee to God. Ask Him for help and strength. Rely on Him and keep on asking. And He will bless us. As strange as it may sound, Christian hope springs from a true understanding of your own hopelessness. If you think that you can do things for God without His help, you misunderstand the Gospel. You turn grace upside down. You really cannot please God in your own strength or willpower. So Christian hope begins in God. It is maintained in God. Now, as a believer, as one who has begun with God, as one who is relying on God, you must cultivate this hope. And this is how we come to our passage. Verses 8 and 9. Paul is telling these Christians in Philippi how to cultivate their hope. Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul says that Christian hope begins with how we think. Christian hope begins in the mind. It begins with God, first of all, but then with us it begins in the mind. And we often overlook the importance of our minds in our walk with Christ. Jesus says in um, Mark chapter 12, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We don't often think, okay, how are we to love God? How are we to love Jesus with our mind? How are we to think in a way that we love Him? Well, as I said, He lays these things out. He lists out several things that we are to think about. First thing He says is whatever's true. And let me pause right here. I meant to say before the sermon, uh, so I wouldn't interrupt myself as I'm doing now, that um, the definition for these these things I found... Um, uh, I found um, Kent Hughes, very helpful in his commentary, and I wanted to give him due credit. Um, a lot of what I'm saying is what I, I've thought through, but the foundation for those thoughts was Kent Hughes, and so I want to give him the intellectual credit that he is due. So, um, what are we to think about? First of all, whatever is true. Well, what are the true things that we're to think about? Well, basically anything that's true. In its broadest sense, truth. Um, we can think about anything that is true and honor God because all truth is God's truth. We are to think about whatever's true in every aspect of life. 
We're to think about what is true regarding our faith, of course, but also what is true regarding science, regarding relationships, regarding our private life, regarding our public life, regarding our business life. We're to think about truth. We are to be a people who are continually occupying ourselves with what is true. We are to rationally engage every aspect of God's creation. As Christians, we need not be afraid or scared of any truth because all truth is God's truth. I think we allow ourselves to be painted into a corner unnecessarily um, by, uh, by the world because we care more about how others think about us than about our commitment to truth. Uh, the, the Christian faith, including creationism, stands up under scrutiny a lot more solidly than evolution. And a Christian philosophy of life is a lot more practical than the so-called humanistic philosophy of life. We can stand on truth unapologetically. In fact, we are to revel in truth. We are to swim in truth like dolphins swim out in the bay. The world is becoming more and more committed to irrationalism. What is random is becoming the standard of truth. And let me tell you that the, 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 the commitment to this irrationalism that uh, our, our culture is becoming increasingly engaged in is a house of cards that will eventually come crushing, crashing down, I believe, with at some point another war-filled century, whether it's this, this coming century or the next, you abandon truth, you live according to your rationality, it creates a vacuum where totalitarianism steps in and fills the void, where totalitarianism comes, war quickly comes soon after. And I believe there's no doubt about it. And so Christians now must be earnestly attempting to fill the vacuum of irrationality with God's truth. We cannot afford to be standing on the sidelines. The second thought pattern that we are to cultivate is honorable thoughts. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable. This refers to moral excellence that is considered dignified or worthy of honor. Paul is saying, think about how to live a noble life. This is what the Boy Scouts pursue. Their whole approach to scouting is to aspire to developing a noble character. Uh, the scout troop in our congregation realizes that God is the starting point of that process. Um, and so we are pleased to have Troop 102 in our congregation. And we do need to be developing noble characters. Our culture is lurching toward the ignoble. What was once considered dishonorable a generation ago 
is now to be is now considered worthy to be sought after. Um, as Christians, we need to cultivate honor and nobility. We are children of an honorable and noble King. The next thing that Paul says that we are to think about is whatever is just. Again, we can't sit on the sidelines. We cannot sit still when injustice is taking place. We are to think about justice. We are to love justice. Uh, The book of Micah tells us. We are to act justly. In the weeks leading up to the election, I steadfastly insisted that the church is not to promote political parties nor to endorse candidates because we belong to God's kingdom and our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, on one, one Wednesday night as I was do, going through the little devotional, I think the Wednesday before the election, I endorsed a candidate and I said, I endorse God. <laughs> and uh, that was as far as, as uh, I believe I was permitted to go and frankly wanted to go. But in saying that, we as citizens of God's righteous kingdom are, are to stand for the helpless and we are to speak for the abused. If we let injustice go unchallenged, then I believe that God will challenge us and discipline us. God says He loves the poor, the fatherless, the needy. And the church is to always have her eye on those whom God loves. The next thing here in this list is we are to think about whatever is lovely. I'm sorry, whatever is pure. And this, of course, um, relates to sexual purity, but it goes beyond um, sexual purity to also purity in thought, purity in speech, purity in action. I don't know this. I think in pictures, and as I was thinking about this, this image came to my mind. Are you pursuing purity, or are you floating down the Ganges River? If you're familiar with the Ganges River in India, uh, you know that the Ganges River is a river where everyone goes basically into the bathroom in the river as some kind of purification rite. And so the current of the river is filled with all kinds of yuck. The current of the river of our culture is not pure. It is filled with an awful lot of yuck. Our culture is a cesspool. Are you going with the flow? Or are you pursuing purity? Are you thinking about purity, cultivating pure thoughts. Next, Paul says that we are to think about whatever is lovely. This relates to things that put themselves forward by their attractiveness. It includes things that are morally lovely, like helping to feed the poor, or aesthetically beautiful, such as beautiful music or art. 
doesn't necessarily need to be overtly Christian. But the question is, is it edifying? Is it soul enriching? Are you thinking about things that are lovely? The next thing Paul says that we are to think about whatever is commendable. This is conduct that is that would be highly spoken of by others. And I'm a bit drawn to this trait this week after celebrating my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. I grew up in the country in, in Palmetto, Georgia. And uh, some of you have been there as, as the youth has stopped over for different trips. Um, and you've not really gotten the sense of how out in the country we really were. Uh, because houses have started to grow up, uh, go up uh, around us. The, the cornfield across the street is now a neighborhood. But I grew up in the country. And uh, only very poor people lived within a mile or two mile radius of our home, except for the guy across the street. He was an Italian, um, and when he was seven years old uh, in Italy, when the um, when the Allies invaded. Uh, two American soldiers were hiding in his home when the Germans came. And when the Germans were going to find them, he uh, planted a uh, an axe into the head of one of the German soldiers, this little seven-year-old boy. And uh, they were able to overcome the other one. His parents ended up allowing him to, uh, to be a- adopted by one of those soldiers. And he came to America... And so we have an Italian villa across the street with, with a, a big 10-foot-tall Statue of Liberty because he so loves America. But other than that, everybody around us was extreme, extremely poor. And I remember my dad uh, water, ran, running, uh, trenching a line and w- running a water line over 200 yards to the very edge of our property because our neighbors across the street had no running water, never had had a well or any running water, and he wanted them to have fresh water. And so he, he, he did this for them to be able to have a, a fresh uh, water supply. Um, I remember us picking up neighbors out of the ditch. We'd be going to church on Sunday morning, and one of our neighbors would be out, uh, would have been out drinking, uh, too heavily and just fell down asleep beside the road, couldn't get home, and we're driving down the road in our Sunday best. My dad pulls over. We pull them into the car and take them home, make sure that they're cared for. Um, my my mom's former students stopped by the house to thank her. They still do it to this day. and She's been retired for years and years um, and thank her for loving them when they were in her classes. This is an example of what Paul means by thinking and acting in a commendable way. And my parents don't do it for show, but, uh, but they are well-loved in our little community. But you take all these things together, and Paul tells us this is how we are to think. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. And then he summarizes. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Um, Kent Hughes said, taken together, uh, these things tell us 
or, or, or give us a wonderful compendium of how we as Christians are to put on the mind of Christ. Now, the opposite is also true. Um, let's invert this list and think about it in the negative. Finally, my brothers, whatever is untrue, whatever is dishonorable, whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is unlovely, whatever... Um, I'm sorry, I, oh, whatever is commendable. If there is anything not morally excellent, if there is anything unworthy of praise, do not think about these things. Thinking in terms of the way Paul commands us also implies that we are not to think in terms of its opposite. <laughs> the problem is, we live here in this culture. We are children of the modern media. Surveys consistently point out that there is virtually no distinction between the viewing habits of Christians and the viewing habits of non-Christians. And so I think it's safe to say that our thinking has become sub-Christian. And to compound matters, we put very little effort into thinking God's thoughts after Him. We put very little effort into thinking Christianly. We put very little effort in hiding God's Word in our hearts in order that we might not sin against Him. We think, well, as long as we're doing the right things, do our minds really matter? Listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedience to Christ. That is something that we should cultivate, captivating our thoughts, making them obedient to Christ. We live in a world of trouble. We live in a culture that is a cesspool. What God wants us to do, what God wanted the Philippians to do, was to fortify their minds against the world in which they were living in. To, to fortify their minds against the challenges that were besetting them. There were challenges inside the church. There were challenges outside the church. We've pointed these out many times as we've been looking at the, the book of Philippians. Paul says that he's telling them that he wanted their minds well stocked with God's grace. We try and escape anxiety. Try and escape our troubles by emptying our minds. The people my dad picked up in the ditch 
on that were out on Saturday night, oftentimes I'm sure were trying to escape their troubles. God says it is not by emptying our minds. Rather, we escape the troubles of this world. We escape the cesspool of our culture by properly filling our minds. I'm going to go over just a bit, but I do want to mention one application that I know is is in some of our young people's minds. It was in my mind when I was a young person. You know, the the I, the, the issue of music. I remember I can remember today distinctly sitting in my mom's white uh, Plymouth Valori station wagon because Black Sabbath and the, 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 the song War Pigs had come on and my mom was like, this is trash. And it really was. And I was trying to say, no, this is wonderful. This is a, a peace song about uh, against war and trying to, commi- uh, to, to convince her that, that this song by Black Sabbath, this was still when Ozzy Osbourne was leading Black Sabbath at the time, was, was somehow commendable. And uh, I was unsuccessful and had to turn off the radio. And every generation tries to do this. I'm not going to address the morality of the music. I simply want you to ask, is it upbuilding? Is it... Um, oh, no wonder I can't find it. I changed, turned over to Corinthians. Is it um, honorable? Does it promote um, justice? Does it is it pure, lovely, commendable? And just think about those things. I'm just asking you to think in those terms. I want to address everybody else. Because if we don't listen to music, we watch television. How are we filling our minds? And then finally, I want to encourage you. The best thing that you can fill your mind with is God's Word, with His promises. And uh, I want to encourage you, read your Bibles. As you read your Scripture, meditate on the promises of God. Think about the hope that He has given us. Not only will you be fortified from the cesspool, but your optimism and your faith will grow. And as your faith grows, your prayers grow. As your prayers grow, your faithfulness grows. As your faithfulness grows, you depend more on God as you depend more on God. Uh, your optimism grows and it spirals upward and upward and can be a wonderful thing. Christians, trust in God. Be optimistic about His work in your life about His work in the, in the church, and about His work in history. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that You would help us to be especially disciplined in these matters of the mind. That is probably where we are least disciplined because no one knows the thoughts that goes through our mind except You. And You search even the deepest thoughts of our minds down to the root motives. And so I pray that You would help us 
We, we, we know our hopelessness. Therefore, we ask that You would help us to be disciplined in thinking about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. And especially, we would think about our Lord Jesus who loved us so much. We pray in His name. Amen.